You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the former Principal Deputy Commissioner of the Social Security Administration, as well as the former Associate Director of the White House National Economic Council, where he worked on Social Security reform. He has published widely in academic publications, as well as in daily newspapers, such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. He holds a bachelor's degree from Queen's University, Belfast, master's degrees from Cambridge University and the University of London, and a PhD from the London School of Economics. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Andrew Biggs. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So first, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Well, um, I, for about the past decade, I've been a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a large think tank based in uh, Washington, D.C. I came to AEI uh, out of the Social Security Administration. I had uh, initially run a small office there that focused on what's called micro-simulation modeling of Social Security and retirement. Eventually ran the whole policy office there, then was you know bumped up, as you tend to be, uh, to the number two spot. Spent about a year uh, working in the White House back in 2005 when President George W. Bush was promoting Social Security reform. Uh, before all that, I worked at the Cato Institute, which is another think tank in, in Washington, D.C. So today I do... Uh, focus on retirement issues, which includes Social Security, general retirement savings, uh, public sector pensions, public sector pay issues. Um, I also have a sort of a side gig, uh, unpaid as a member of the Federal uh, Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico is bankrupt. And one of the reasons was because their pensions ran out of money. So I was brought in um, in that context. And that's that's an issue that I've been working on for about five years. And, you know, takes a great deal of my attention, but it's also extremely important. So that sounds really interesting. And those are definitely some of the topics I'd want to touch on today. Um, So I'd like to start off by talking to you a bit about Social Security. So as you probably know, the way Social Security is run in the United States is different to pension plans in most other developed countries around the world, such as the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. So whilst most countries provide some type of protection against poverty and old age, um, they rely mostly on personal savings in individual retirement accounts, as opposed to a public system in which contributions are mandatory and payments are determined by the government. So why does the United States do things so differently? And which approach do you believe is superior? Well, I think there's a, a, a broad spectrum of how governments sort of help people prepare for retirement, provide income in retirement. You know, on one end of that spectrum, you would have, say, a Latin American country like Chile, which mandates that you save for retirement on your own, um, but doesn't do an enormous amount on top of that. They do have minimum benefits. On the other hand, you have places, you know, continental Europe, France, Luxembourg, where almost all of the benefits are provided by government. And there's honestly not that much private saving for retirement outside of that. Uh, the U.S. 
us is somewhere in between in the sense that we have a social security program, which is financed on what we call pay-as-you-go basis, meaning there's no fund there really to speak of as you pay taxes in as your worker and those taxes go right out the door to pay benefits for retirees. And on average, Americans probably get about 40% of their retirement income from social security. The rest comes from personal savings, employer-sponsored retirement plans, work in retirement. I do think there is a difference in the way the U.S. goes about Social Security today versus other you know, Anglo countries. And I, and I refer to them because you know, we have similar kind of traditions in terms of the role of government, uh, similar thoughts about economics. If you look at a place like the United Kingdom or Australia or New Zealand, the government uh, really restricts itself to the sort of the safety net role of pre- preventing and protecting us poverty and old age. Then on top of that, people save more for retirement on their own. So a country like Australia, you know, as a percentage of GDP, their government-run Social Security plan is about half as large as Social Security in the U.S. But on top of that, though, they mandate that every employee be enrolled into uh, an employer-sponsored retirement plan. Usually it's a retirement account, but it could be a traditional pension. And so there's just a, a question of what is the role for government in terms of providing retirement income versus what is the role for individuals? And I think... Uh, if you look at some of the other uh, Anglo countries, which are similar to the U.S., they're moving in the direction of government playing that safety net role, which, to be honest, only government's going to play. But having individuals save more for retirement on their own, and that's something individuals are good at. Government is very poor at actually funding retirement plans. It's a problem around the world. In the United States, at least, Americans are saving more for retirement than ever. So it's having each sector do what it does best to produce a, kind of a package that helps people retire with economic security and dignity. Yeah. And so the average American worker earning $36,000, if they invested the same 12.4% with their employer into a conservative uh, retirement investment account, would have about $15,000 a month for the rest of their lives based on the life expectancy. Yet Social Security pays the average person about a tenth of that. So how can the government justify keeping Social Security with these kinds of mathematical flaws? And what, what's preventing them from altering or even abolishing it? Okay, that's I mean that's a that's a very interesting question, and it, and those sorts of comparisons drove I think the the movement for personal retirement accounts for Social Security privatization. I was involved in that, you know, beginning in the mid to late nineties, and I think culminating about ten years later when President Bush tried to pass a Social Security reform based on personal retirement accounts. And he, that was in two thousand five. He tried, and and you know, despite Republicans controlling both houses of Congress and the president being strongly behind it. Uh, he was unable to pass that. Those sorts of comparisons, I think, can be misleading. And there's a, there's a couple reasons for that. The first is if you have a pay-as-you-go system like Social Security, where money goes in, money comes out, you know, workers pay in, retirees and disabled collect benefits you know, from that same money in the same year. That uh, sort of system does, in fact, pay a lower sort of rate of return than if you were investing in the stock market. Um, but there's two reasons for it. And the first reason is that a pay-as-you-go system like Social Security can begin paying benefits almost immediately. Social Security began in 1935. They started collecting taxes a year or so later. It started paying out benefits to retirees in 1940. If instead people had put their money into a retirement account or a you know, regular fully funded pension, 
people would not have started receiving full benefits from that plan until you know, a full career later, 35 or 40 years later. So there, there is the issue that if you want to pay benefits quickly, a pay-as-you-go system like Social Security will do that, even if in the long run, it's not going to pay a higher rate of return. The second difference when you compare what people might get in stock market to what they get under Social Security is the stock market is risky. Social Security is not. Um, you know, the, the return on social, social security is you know, very similar to a government bond in a way. You know, the government, you pay the government money today and they promise to pay you some fixed amount in the future. And so it's very similar to a government bond, this low risk. The stock market, even over long periods of time, is in fact risky. And so if you account for those two things, then the, the rates of return are very similar. Another way to think about it, of thinking, why do we not why or why did we not go to a system of personal accounts? Why have we not uh, privatized Social Security? And the answer is that right now the taxes you and I pay are already called upon to pay the benefits for today's retirees. Uh, you know, my parents or grandparents, they are depending on my taxes to receive their Social Security benefits. That's just how a pay-as-you-go system works. If I instead take that money and I put it into a personal account, yeah, I can invest it and get a higher rate of return for myself. And that's great. But then we have to think about what's what money is going to pay the benefits for today's retirees. This is what people in the trade call the transition cost. Now, eventually over time, um, you know, the today's retirees, you know, they're we cover their benefits, they you know, die off, and that transition cost is paid and it's done. And then going forward from there, people are in fact better off. The problem is nobody wants to be the one who pays the transition cost. Nobody wants to be the one who has to pay twice. You know, it's great if I can save my payroll taxes in a personal account, but then I also have to pay some extra money to, uh, to make sure benefits keep getting paid for today's retirees. When I think about why um, President Bush's push for Social Security reform failed, I think it, it comes down to that, that for this transition generation has to pay twice. And they don't want to pay twice. You know, Americans are selfish <laughs> and they would prefer to kick the can down the road, which is what we've done. Um, so in the long run, you know, a fully funded system, whether it's through you know, personal accounts like a 401k or whether it would be through a traditional pension where, you know, Together, we build up a pension fund. In the long run, that will be a better deal for people. It would pay a higher rate of return with lower levels of risk than the current Social Security system. The problem is getting from an unfunded system like Social Security to a funded system demands we put up the funds and nobody wants to do it. And I think that's really the barrier to getting there. Is there an argument to be made that um, even the generation or the, the group of people that bear this transition cost, they'll still be better off at retirement than they would be under Social Security? Um, is, is that, does that work out mathematically or? I think, it it probably, I think it probably doesn't. And, you know, this I'm trying to think of an easy way to explain it, but um, If I were to take, well, let's say I'm participating in Social Security today, my money is going to, um, to currently pay current retirees. If I decide to divert that money to um, a personal account, then I have to make up this transition cost. So the net for me is um, the amount I'm putting into my personal account, I get a higher rate of return on that. 
but the amounts I have to pay in the transition cost um, uh, lowers that. So I think that transition generation on net is in fact worse off because of it. Every other generation is better off. That transition generation, I think, is in fact worse off because they are um, paying extra money and not getting all the extra benefits from it. So it is, you know, you're making an investment for the future. I mean, if I were to do this and pay these transition costs, my kids and grandkids will be better off. But I think the math does not really work out. The transition generation is better off. You know, you can, you know, you, you could make it look like they are if you assume you can earn high returns in the stock market without taking risks, things like that. Um, but I think in general, if you, if you control for both the transition costs and the differences in risk, the transition generation is in fact made worse off because of it. And you can, you know, another way to look at it is, and this is especially going back to discussions late 90s of how you finance this transition. Um, people would say, okay, well, we're not going to make you pay extra to cover the transition costs. What we're doing is we're going to cut other government programs. And I think, you know, I'm a conservative leaning guy. So I think a lot of these programs are not particularly productive. Um, and so, you know, if you cut them, there might be some benefit from it. But if you cut those programs without, uh, privatizing Social Security, instead of taking that money using for transition costs to benefit future generations, I could just keep that money. And so I'd be better off because of um, uh, just cutting wasteful government spending and keeping the money myself. And so it's what's doing the work there is the cutting wasteful government spending. Um, it's not the privatization itself. And this is something where I think you know, if you got me when I was first starting this, I was, you know, full on believers, you know, Chilean style privatization. And as you sort of work the numbers, you're like, okay, this gets more difficult. But I think when it came to the time when President Bush was really saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to try to pass the social security form based on personal accounts where you can divert some of your taxes to the account. I think some of the people on Capitol Hill were not prepared for the idea that this wasn't a free lunch. Um, they were sold all along the idea, well, to fix Social Security, we can either raise taxes, which nobody likes, cut benefits, which nobody likes, or earn a higher rate of return by investing in the stock market. And the reality is, if you privatize Social Security, you still have those same choices of cutting benefits, raising taxes, because you have to finance the transition cost. So something like President Bush's uh, Social Security reform plan that, in fact, would cut benefits coming from the, the traditional system as a way of um, you know making the system financially sustainable. There were plans out there that tried not to do it, but I think you know they relied on the assumption that the stock market essentially doesn't carry any risk; that's a free lunch, and it's not. Um, so it's just a tougher a pay-as-you-go system, whether it's Social Security or Medicare. They're just it's it is a very difficult system to reform because people have paid money in all their lives, thinking that money is somehow being saved for them, thinking they've earned a benefit. And in fact, that money is gone. And they are depending on the people in the future, the future workers to also pay money in to pay for their own benefits. And people describe this as being like a Ponzi scheme or whatever. Um, and, and mathematically it is. It's not a Ponzi scheme in the sense of being a fraud or dishonest to people. It's just how this thing is financed. The problem is once you get in, you're, it's very, very hard to get out. Um, if you look at Social Security's funding shortfall, it's... Uh, or 75 years is underfunded by somewhere on $17 trillion. All of that 
it comes from the early generations of participants who paid more into the system than they got out, or they paid less into the system in taxes than they got in benefits. You know, those people who uh, retired in 1940 or 1960 or so, they got compared to what they paid in, they got an incredible deal from the system. A lot, they got a lot more money in benefits than they paid in taxes. But Social Security is like a seesaw. You know, somebody's getting more benefits than they paid in taxes. Somebody else has to pay more taxes than they get in benefits. That's the stage of Social Security's history that we're in right now. And people back then understood this. They understood that Social Security would be a much better deal for people in the early years than it would be in the long run. And they just said, that's the decision we're going to make. Maybe it made sense because we're coming out of the Great Depression. Um, maybe people decided that because politicians always favor today in the, you know, against the future. They, they want to do what makes voters happy today. They don't care about future voters because that's not their problem. So, But people at that point understood the sort of the time pattern of this. The Social Security would be a much better deal in the early years than it would be once the system was fully mature, which it is today. Mm-hmm. Social Security was a much better um, mathematical deal um, back when it was implemented in the 1930s. Um, for every every retiree, I think there was something like 40 um, current workers. Um, the population was skewed um, much younger. Um, there, people didn't live nearly as long. I think the life expectancy was significantly less um, back in the 1930s. So even when people did retire, they, they, they drew benefits for a much shorter period of time. Uh, and there were dozens and dozens of people to fund that. Um, right now, I think the, the ratio is down to like three workers for every one retiree. Um, and, and people are living much, much longer now. Um, I think the sure. average person that hits 65 is going to live for another uh, 18 to 20 years. Yep. Yeah, that ratio of workers to retirees is crucial for Social Security. And I'll kind of maybe I'll explain to you some simple math on that, see if I can make the math work. Um, but the average Social Security benefit paid out to retirees and disabled today, that is equal to about 40% of the average wage earned by workers today. So if you have, you know, let's say if you had five workers for every beneficiary, which you did back in 1960, you take 40% divided by five and you get 8%. So that's what the payroll tax rate would have to be. If each person, each worker paid an 8% payroll tax, there's five workers per retiree, you can pay retirees a benefit that's equal to 40% of the average wage. Now we're uh, the, the benefits are still roughly the same relative to average wages, but the ratio of workers to retirees has shrunk. So today we're about three workers per retiree. So you take uh, uh, 40 divided by three, you get about 13 and a half percent. That's what the cost rate of Social Security is as a percentage of payroll. Now go forward, you know, back once we get to the 2030s, uh, 2040, you're down to two workers for retiree. Okay, take that same benefit, which equal to 40% of the average wage, divided by two. Now you're at essentially an implicit cost of 20% of each worker's wages have to go to pay Social Security. So the demographics make the math simple, but boy, it, it you know, it just you're at the same benefit level, people in the past just simply paid much lower taxes because the demographics were so much more favorable. Um, if you go to some other countries, they're you know, going to be less than two workers for retiree. That gets very, very difficult financially to sustain because there's a whole range of other things the government can be doing with that money. Uh, you know, we want healthcare, we want national defense, we want education, infrastructure, and all the rest. So if 20% of each worker's wages are going just for this one program, it gets very expensive. So that's why I think over time, what you want to do is have 
Social Security get refocused on providing a really good safety net against poverty and old age, which today is sort of only okay. But, you know, provide a real guarantee you will not retire into poverty, but you're going to have to save more on top of that. And I think something like that, similar to what you have in, in Australia, New Zealand, or the UK, look, it doesn't solve this problem that Social Security is insolvent or that uh, Social Security is not a good deal or whatever, but it takes you to a program that, that is more sustainable in the long run in a situation in which you only got two workers for retiree. I mean, that's the, the alternative is just a very, very expensive system at a time we've got so many other things we want government to be doing. And it really does sound, um, based on this and um, Social Security's um, projected lack of funds sometime in the future, um, it, it just sounds like we're headed towards a, a, on, on a collision course. Um, I was looking at Australia's system and essentially what they do is um, they they mandate that every worker has to put I think it's now twelve percent of their their wages into uh, retirement um, investment account and and like you said they also um, provide a quite a robust safety net uh, against poverty and old age and so um, essentially what I wanted to ask is um, does this does this um, does this generation that would have to bear the transition costs the the only thing really that's stopping us from moving to a, a privatized system. Um, is, does that have to come from the current generation of workers? Um, I think over the, the course of the pandemic, we spent trillions and trillions of dollars um, in, in deficit spending um, to alleviate a lot of our issues. Is there no way we can take a similar approach? Um, what would be the, the magnitude of that cost? Um, and, and is there any way we can fund this without putting the burden on current workers and um, look, look to phase that out over the next 30 to 40 years? Well, yeah, you could argue that, okay, we could have taken this money that we spent on various, say, COVID-related programs, you know, which some of which were effective, some less effective, some that we could have used for Social Security. And that, you know, I'm sure we'd have done that. Um, you know, some proposed, let's borrow to cover these transition costs and pay it off over time. You know, it's... It's kind of if you're trying to go from an unfunded system, which you have today, to a funded system. The fun, fully funded system is one that pays you higher rates of return at lower levels of risk. Um, the unfunded system does. If you want to go from unfunded to funded, you actually have to produce the funds. Borrowing to produce the funds doesn't really do it for you. It's sort of like saying, I need to save for retirement, so I'm going to borrow money and put it in my 401k. At that point, there's not anything really economic going on. Um, what is going on is finance. You're just saying, I'm going to borrow at a low rate and then hopefully invest at a higher rate. Um, and, that, and I'm just, you know, skim off the difference. <laughs> and the problem is at the economy wide level, that doesn't work because, uh, you know, we've only got the GDP we've got. And if you're, if you're playing that finance game, we're going to borrow trillions here and, and, you know, through government bonds, we're going to reinvest in the stock market. It doesn't change the size of your economy. It kind of changes who might get what. It might change who's bearing the risk. But it's not something that fundamentally changes how much we're producing. If, on the other hand, people today simply decide we're going to consume less and save more, and we're going to do that by investing, you know, fund the transition to a new privatized social security program. It's that extra saving, which puts more capital into the economy, uh, provides more money for tools, which will make workers more productive, more money for research and investment, which also raise productivity. 
then your actual economy gets bigger in the future. You have more money to give out to people, but you can't get there just by borrowing. Borrowing doesn't do it for you because you're taking away capital on one hand and adding it on the other hand. So it's at the level of the economy as a whole, stuff like that doesn't really work. You know, the question is, are people willing to give up something today in order to have a better system in the future? You know, it's a little bit like, say, the climate change debate. And it's not, you know, I'm not talking the debate over why we will have climate change, but moreover, you know, what should we do about climate change? And that gets to a question of how much should people today do to make people in the future better off? And, you know, it's, it comes to kind of a philosophical question of, you know, I mean, the, you know, climate change, the world's not going to end. It's just if it's bad, the world in the future is not going to be as good as it might be. But those people are still probably going to be better off than today's Americans are. So should people who are worse off, you know, in terms of incomes today, make themselves even worse off in order to make people in the future even better off? It's it's something if you if you do these things in cross section and say okay we're all the same time should we take money from lower income people give it to higher income people would say no for a lot of these things whether it's moving to social security full funding or you know trying to address climate change and all that is similar in a way because it demands that people today give something up for people in the future and those future people are probably be better off than today's people are so in terms of financial incentives a lot of people just today don't want to do it but it's also raises these philosophical questions like sort of what do we owe to future generations how much are we willing to do for them think about the the immediate um economic boom um, switching to a, a more privatized system would cause um, every single American worker and their employer in tandem contributing a, a, a significant portion of their income um, into the stock market every year. Um, you know, tr- uh, billions and billions of dollars every year um, that's made um, available in, in, as capital investment into the economy. Um, you know, that that money, if it's going into the stock market, um, it, it's financing all these uh, companies who are putting a uh, Part of that money into innovation and development, um, and, and you know, um, just just overall, um, I think it's it's pretty clear that when we increase investment in the economy, we also um, increase um, long term capital formation, and so um, wouldn't wouldn't that on its own um, be enough to justify um, the well? Um, wouldn't that on its own be short term enough to justify the the investment right now by by the American people? Well, it. It all comes down to get how you finance it. Um, and I mean, one, you know, I went back to the, going back to the earlier example. I said, okay, what, you know, what would happen if I were to, you know, I'm paying into social security today. What would happen if I decided I, you know, move my money into the private account? Um, if instead, let, let's say those transition cost amounts, that I would have to pay to move to a privatized system. I could pay those and then people in the future be better off from it, you know, and, and because the economy would in fact be bigger and there'd be more money to distribute to people. So that's one thing, or I could just take that money myself and invest it on my own behalf, just put it in my 401k or something. It's all, it's the same amount of money going into the economy um, it's just all the benefits are going to me, not the future generations. So, there were, you know, another way to think about it is that this stuff all comes down to how you finance it. That, um, you know, if we were all to decide to save more, to fund the transition to a fully funded you know, social security program, 
then yeah, there's going to be more uh, capital in the economy. That's going to raise output. It's going to raise productivity, raise wages. That's great. But it all depends on how you finance it. If we finance that by issuing debt, it's not really more money going in. It's what it is, is we're just going to be bidding up the price. There's no new capital there. You know, it's we're borrowing money on one hand, sticking it on the other. It's just uh, you would just be bidding up the price of existing assets. The stock market would rise because we're all chasing the same number of stocks with more money. But it mean, that would be something more like inflation than really just us getting better off. And so it's you know, the, the, the key thing to remember is there's, there's no magic here. You know, if we if back in 1935, we had started a fully funded Social Security program. We put the money in and we invested it for the long term and we pulled money out. Yes, people today would clearly be better off. I mean, going back to those early examples he brought up, that's what we would experience. People today would be better off if we had started a fully funded Social Security program in 1935. What you're giving away, though, is all those people from like 1940 to 1965, 1970 really wouldn't have received much lower Social Security benefits than they did because there just wouldn't have been enough money to pay them. And so it's a trade off of, you know, I mean, we are already much better off than people in the 1960s or 70s. So how much more better off do we want to be? Again, it's these, these are sort of philosophical questions, but clarifying the finance tells you, you know, that's in fact what's going on. Right. And that's, that's exactly what I was trying to understand. Um, it is this just taking money from, you know, one hand, putting it in the other, um, or are we actually growing the economy? And if, if the, if this sort of capital investment is not going to result in that, then I, I guess there's very little justification. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about, um, was I wanted to talk to you a bit about the significant politicization of social security. Um, and it's become an issue that politicians on both sides of the aisle are afraid to touch. Um, you've been on the inside of this. You've seen, um, you know, uh, uh, Republican uh, House House of Representatives, uh, Republican Senate um, failed to pass Social Security privatization. Um, I think Democrats now have moved much further to the left on that issue. And so what's behind this, this sort of increasing politicization? Why isn't it simply being viewed as a, a mathematical problem to get retirees as much money as they can? That's, that's a good question. And it, it's interesting how the political dynamic and the political energy on Social Security has changed. If you go back to the 1990s, Seemingly, every Republican member of Congress had their own Social Security reform plan they're coming out with. You know, we were we were all into it. And the Democrats were playing total defense. They just didn't really, you know, they know they didn't want privatization. They didn't want to cut benefits. But they didn't, very few of them put out plans of their own. Um, back during the 2005 debate, there's uh, an instance where a Democratic member from Florida, who was interested in Social Security reform, he asked then Speaker Pelosi, when are, you know, President Bush has his plan, when are we going to have our plan for Social Security? And Pelosi's response was, never, is never soon enough for you. And politically speaking, she was right. The Democrats never put out an alternative to uh, President Bush's plan. And, you know, the political debate didn't demand that they did. It's people don't demand that each side have their own reform plan. They tend to say, okay, these guys want to change the system. These guys want to keep the system the same. Let's judge that on their merits. It's the same as if you went to the debate over the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Um, the Democrats then, they had their plan to reform health care. Republicans didn't put up their own reform plan. They didn't have to. And they 
even though Obama had enormous majorities in Congress, Republicans almost defeated it. Today, the energy on Social Security is all on the Democratic side. They have convinced themselves that the U.S. retirement system is failing, that Americans face a retirement crisis, you know, people are not good at saving on their own, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all of which is false. I mean, the, the data show it's false, but they convince themselves of this. And they say the only way to fix it is to expand Social Security. So right now, I think over 90 percent of House Democrats, at least, have co-sponsored legislation that would expand the Social Security program by raising taxes, uh, not just taxes on high income people, tax, the, the, the payroll tax rate as well, which hits low and middle income people. So they're all in on this. And when Republicans criticize them, they say, hey, Republicans, where's your plan? You know, it's the exact same thing Republicans said to Democrats 15 years ago. Hey, here's our plan. Where is yours? People don't care about what the plan is. But here's where the rubber meets the road is just as President Bush could not pass his own Social Security reform plan with only with Republican votes, even though he had the majorities, Democrats cannot pass uh, their version of Social Security reform, which relies more on tax increases, they can't do it. And, and the reason they can't do it is not because of mansion and cinema or anything like that. They couldn't even pass from the House. Um, and the reason is that it has tax increases, not just on the millionaires and billionaires, but on ordinary people. And, uh, you know, President Biden has pledged no tax increases on people earning less than $200,000, I believe. And, well, guess what? The Democratic reform plan for Social Security raises taxes on everyone, including those people making less than $200,000. So they're in a box. You know, they say our plan is very popular. It's like, yeah, well, your president, in order to get himself elected, promise not to raise taxes on precisely the people you are promising to raise taxes on. And so that Democratic uh, Social Security plan is called Social Security 2100 Act. That's been sitting around for three, four years. They keep saying, oh, we're going to bring it up for a vote. But they're not because they're, they won't win. And the reality is there is no magic to fixing Social Security. You know, there is no sort of, I mean, I have my idea what the best system is, but there's no like mathematically best system. It comes down to just people deciding what their priorities are going to be and how much they're willing to compromise to get there. So, you know, it sounds kind of squishy to say we need Republicans and Democrats to come together. But the reality is that on big issues like entitlement reform, you know, healthcare, Social Security, Medicare, it is much easier to play defense than it is to play offense, meaning it is way easier to defeat a bill than it is to pass one. Neither side has the political capital to pass their own Social Security reform plan. So if you want something to happen, then you have to uh, meet somewhere in the middle. And it's just, you know, it's, that's just not, you know, I mean, my own ideas for social security reform are fairly radical by some people's minds, but I also realized that, you know, I'm not a dictator and I can't uh, pass that. So you have to find some way of finding something that will pass. And that's, that's where the politics get tricky these days. It's much easier to defeat a bill than to pass a bill. It really does speak to the, the, pathology of, of um, all humankind, really. I think uh, the founders wrote it best in the Declaration of Independence. Um, they wrote, and accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they're accustomed. I think that speaks more broadly to, well, we're, we're always going to stick with the status quo, right? Even if it's not ideal, even if um, there could be problems down the road, as long as it's not causing problems for us now, as long as it's, it's tolerable, 
um, our current system, we're we're much more disposed to, to to keeping the system that we have in place rather than trying to trying to um, trying to fix it and, and improve it. So that uh, um, I think that's just a, a really good way to, to finish off. So um, it, I, I don't know. Um, I, I just like to give you a final chance if there's anything else you'd like to say um, about Social Security. Um, otherwise, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed doing it today. It's a great opportunity to talk about an important issue. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.